0: just before we get into this episode we are obviously going to touch on medical conditions now whilst extremely rare there are people in the world that evidently do suffer with these particular conditions so we just wanted to make sure that we stayed respectful with the way in which we covered them um, but we were naturally going to talk about the way in which they were researched and kind of all of the public um, opinion that kind of came along with it because we'll talk about some new stories research that sort of thing <music> hello and welcome to another episode of casting views a podcast where we take something each week and we'll cast some views it could be something random in actual fact this month it's relatively unusual but prior to getting into that um, yeah. sorry no, wait I saw, I saw, hang on a minute you there. <laughs> hang on a minute who are you I'm
1: Dan. Actually. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well done. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> and I'm Lou. Um, I feel like I've done that intro really backwards, um, but hopefully it might mean that I'll get the outro right this week. Prior to getting into our topic, we have a promo from some podcast friends of ours, and that this week is going to be Unchefed. So I'm going to pass over to them. Hello, everyone. This is Brendan from the Unsheft podcast. Each week on Unsheft, we unpack a topic regarding the politics and history of our plates. In the hope of becoming better eaters, that's UnChef available now on your preferred podcast network. And we're back. So this is week two of unusual month, which is good. Got that the right way around. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We didn't get it right. Was it food month where it was just like, oh, this is week sixty-five of food. It was food week, month, (laughs) day, yeah, Yeah. hour. Yeah. (laughs) So this month there's a focus on kind of like the weird and wonderful or the unusual and strange i guess is the way you put it yeah so last week we touched on laws rules regulations um that were just a little bit unusual and this week we're going to talk about medical conditions and like medical phenomenon i guess
1: yeah yeah i think that's fair
0: um i feel like we need to put a caveat out because we have been discussing this we will talk about what is evidently like strange and unusual medical conditions but evidently people in this world Will suffer with them, whether or not any of our listeners will. We don't know. And if you do, please do reach out to us. But obviously, I think in in the way that which we talk about them, we're coming at them from the perspective that they're just relatively unusual in terms of strange and unusual that you just don't see kind of day to day.
1: We're here to kind of yeah, like you said, cast a light on some of the more unusual things. Yeah, yeah. As opposed to like you said, your day to day things.
0: Yeah. So that's the way that we'll 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 get into it. So do you want to kick off, or do you want me to kick off?
1: Uh, I'll let you kick off. Okay. Now, <laughs> You've introd it so beautifully. So you yeah, I have. Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> butchered the intro. You know, I butchered the bloody outro as well. Now, the first one that I've got is Jerusalem syndrome. Not heard of that.
1: Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, no. Now, well, now- m- explain it. I might. I might know it. But yeah, I can't say I've heard it as the name.
0: Now, I heard of this separately to doing the research for this episode because I once saw like a little, like fifteen minute. I don't know if it was like a Vice thing or something on it. Um, And this basically is a mental phenomena that basically makes somebody or puts somebody in a state of psychosis when they visit the city of Jerusalem. So their behavior basically becomes erratic, themed around religious ideas when they arrive in Jerusalem and or spend time in Jerusalem. There are actually statistics about how many people were affected by this. And there were admissions to hospital of up to 100 people a year for this particular wow. condition. Wow. Um, and basically people for it, it, it's, it's stated that usually people recover within kind of three to seven days and feel kind of ashamed of their behavior and that sort of thing. But it includes like irritation, a want to wear white robes for some reason. Yeah. It basically puts you into a, a kind of like a, a psychotic trance almost um, really strange. There are individual cases of this that you can read about. I, I don't feel like many of them are particularly well, done and i think that's because there's a level of like stigma that comes around this phenomenon because it's not okay. something that people are necessarily outwardly willing to talk about if they've experienced it um it's actually state well stage it's actually typed as well so there are lots of conflicting reports about whether or not it's a legitimate thing or whether or not people that are affected by delusional syndrome already have some form of psychotic illness already exists basically so there's three types of jerusalem syndrome and i'll define them all for you now so type one is jerusalem syndrome imposed on a previous psychotic illness so this basically is just referring to people that have already been diagnosed to some form of psychotic illness prior to their visit to jerusalem or they've gone to the city because of like already a heavy influence of like religion and, and I guess kind of like a sense of, of like salvation about them almost by visiting what is yeah. traditionally seen as Christianity's like most holy place. There's type two and this one is, I'm going to struggle with all the wording here. Jerusalem syndrome superimposed on and complicated by idiosyncratic ideas. So it doesn't necessarily take the form of a mental illness and may seem oh, like right. a okay. culturally a cultural obsession with the significance of the place, either as part of like a group or an individual, and then type three is basically where a person who's had no previous history of mental illness becomes psychotic upon arriving in Jerusalem, and that is again where they've just turned up absolutely saying as a tourist to see Jerusalem, not even necessarily particularly religious, and they just turn in could turn into kind of like a like they go into like a psychotic kind of trance while they're there. There was a study that was done on 42 cases over a period of 13 years, and they were never able to confirm as to whether or not the condition was temporary. Um, but it's right. again reported that some people, that most people, sorry, skip out of it between kind of like three and seven days. So there's a period which is 13 years. So it's 1980 to 1993. And this is the Kafar, again, sorry if I butchered the pronunciation, the Kafar Shoal Mental Health Center in Jerusalem. So, 1,200 tourists with severe Jerusalem-themed mental problems were referred to the clinic, and of these, 470 were admitted to hospital. On average, 100 tourists have been seen annually; 40 of them requiring hospital treatment. On average,
1: so I think you sort of said it in one of them. Do we think it's like where they are so what's, trying to write, use the right words like excited or their mind? They've just been devoted to wanting to go there for so long. And is it that their mind just gets overtaken with happiness, excitement? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? That it it just overworked once they get there.
0: This is the thing. I think the strangeness about this one for me is the fact that they have taken studies and evidently the type one and type two are people that have either had kind of previous mental illness or, or kind of disorder. Now, I think the strangeness about this for me is that the most common form is type three where it's just a person that's never had any issue before not necessarily religious and for me that's a strange thing i don't know if it's because you build jerusalem up because obviously you know when you look at it like i said from the from the light perspective of christianity it's one of the most holy places in the world or is the most like holy place in the world i don't know whether or not that just has an effect on a particular number of people because i guess you have to balance it up against the context of how many millions of people visit jerusalem every year so oh, when you yeah. look at the incidents of oh 100 people are admitted to hospital because they're so i guess if you to put it in the context of they're so overwhelmed by the place that they are where in the place that they are of the three million people potentially that go to jerusalem every year that's actually not a particularly high number of people in terms of a percentage. So I guess it's just a very strange phenomenon. And everybody agrees that people do go into kind of like a psychotic trance of the people that that are admitted to hospital. It's a very, very strange phenomenon, and or psychological condition.
1: That that is unusual. You know, I, I guess what I was trying to say, could it be for a lot of people I want to. When I say trip of a lifetime, what I, I don't mean like, oh, it's in a holiday term, but like that, like you said, that is a destination for religious reasons or what have you yeah. that they really want to go to. And once they're there, they just become overwhelmed, I think is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And, yeah. And maybe that's how it manifests. Has there been any study in terms of like age or.
0: Um, anything, no, nothing details? specific in terms of age. But again, I think it's because it covers people of all like backgrounds so there's no kind of specific average when it comes to people under 30 people over the age of 60 nothing like that but yeah it's like even like like i said it's strange because like some of the um symptoms of Jerusalem syndrome are turning around and saying, well, it's like irritability, it's lack of sleep. But again, like it's strange things like the willingness or the want to wear white robes. And then there's a load of religious kind of themed symptoms that kind of fall in there as well. It's just a very strange thing. And I think that I'm kind of more sitting on this one as a case of people get to Jerusalem and are more so overwhelmed by the place that they are, given that they've built it up as being, you know, the, the center of Christianity.
1: I think it's that build up, build up bottling of emotion, probably until the moment you get there and you see it for the first time or, or, or you get there. I, I, yeah, I guess that's where I'm coming from.
0: Yeah, that's the thing. And so I think to myself, you know, we've all been in like a stressful situation, potentially that has made us behave in a way that's, you know, irritable or, you know, that sort of thing. So I guess is it maybe just the the, the opposite side? It's like the euphoria. It's It's all of the emotion that comes along with that, that all of a sudden kind of puts you in a kind of like state of like I guess kind of like shock maybe I yeah. don't know it's it's just a strange one but like I said it's it's weird because the symptoms in terms of like the white robe thing kind of falls alongside that one yeah the, I couldn't yeah.
1: explain yeah
0: but when you look at the list of symptoms and so when you look at the symptoms that fall across all the categories so if you look it's some some of the symptoms are identifying with the character from the bible magical ideas concerning health sickness and healing possibilities connected with jerusalem there's identification with particular religious or political ideas that kind of all of a sudden onset it's it's very strange and then there were pictures of people that are dressed up as jesus and were like preaching in the streets as if they were jesus but not from a perspective of like oh you go to london and someone dresses up as a royal guard because they want to make change as in somebody is sat in the street genuinely believing that they are jesus right right yeah it's it's a really strange strange phenomenon if you want to call it a phenomenon or disorder if you want to call it that but yeah like I said there's thousands of people that have been like you know diagnosed with it and and hundreds and hundreds of people that have gone to hospital so it's it's evidently a thing it just kind of depends on what side of the fence you sit as to whether or not you actually think it's some sort of medical condition or if it's just something kind of brought about by by the fact that they're in Jerusalem and they're overwhelmed
1: I think I mean, when we come onto mine, let me know when you want to do that. I've only got two, and one of them is something that is centered around the brain and the mind. And I think, you know, I think go back to one of our early episodes where I think I was talking and saying that ultimately the brain is wired a certain way and, you know, these subtle little changes can that can affect kind of how we percept things or how we, think about things and i don't want to sort of speak for, you, for your list but i'm guessing there's probably a couple on your list that may be in and around how people perceive things or, yeah, or react yeah. to things so it's the kind of the human brain the human body is just still amazing even to this day in what it can do yeah. to the person
0: yeah a very 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 strange one but again like when you look at it, it talks about the the, the so it's not funny it's funny in the context of it's a strange thing declaration or the desire to split away from a group or family and tour Jerusalem alone so basically people that have this condition while they're there also decide to basically say I need to do it by myself they go on like marches between particular destinations and again they this is where the togas and bedsheets come from they use hotel linen to make toga like gowns and again this is consistent amongst a number of people they shout and scream loud verses from the bible that they've then gone out and learned very very strange never i don't think i've known anyone to experience jerusalem syndrome but i've heard about it prior to prior to doing the research
1: Uh, no no i hadn't i hadn't
0: kind of makes me concerned to visit jerusalem just in case i'd like you know that happens to me
1: well (laughs) well, that's the thing with a couple of things and and i think the couple of i've got it that it is very much you don't know if you could be affected by this or not
0: yeah yeah and i feel like people that might have been affected previously will have gone to jerusalem thinking oh yeah absolutely normal fine and all of a sudden had that been admitted to hospital and then come out thinking what actually happens to me yeah 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 wow. very strange wow yeah so what what have you got for me
1: right I've got like I said I've got two but I've got quite a bit on each one so I'm, I'm you know we might go into this a little bit but my first one is and I chose it because I remember seeing it on the news a couple of times over here and it's a uh, foreign accent syndrome I'm gonna stick specifically with foreign accent rather than I know there have been examples where people have woken up and, and kind of spoken a different language entirely but I'll probably refer to it as FAS from now on, FAS, because it's going to be said a lot of times. So it's a medical condition in which patients develop speech patterns that are perceived as a foreign accent. So it's got to be different from their native accent without having acquired it in the perceived accent's place of origin. The cause of it is often related to potentially damage to the brain. So it could come from a stroke, head trauma, migraines or developmental problems. Um, and the condition might occur due, due to lesions in the speech production network of the brain. But it can also be considered a neuropsychiatric condition. Now, the actual first case of this written, reported was in 1907. OK. So, yeah, it's well over 100 years. And between 1941 and 2009, there were 62 cases. So, well, recorded, that is. So, you know, it's not that there's a huge amount of cases but you know there there do seem to be it seems to be a consistent syndrome
0: is the 62 is that worldwide or is that uk
1: i think it's worldwide because i look at the history oh and, w- and one of the key things for this is that uh, yes yeah, so it's symptoms result from a dist- distorted articulatory planning and coordination process and basically it's got to be as i said to you earlier it's got that it's the the person speaks in their native language, but in a a different accent. What they have said is there's been no verified case where a patient's foreign language skills have improved after the brain injury. So there's no, it is very much a temporary.
0: Right, okay.
1: So, you know, to answer your question about around the world, it's still very rare. And in fact, they said in 2018, so a little bit more recent, they estimate that there's only as few as 80 people had it currently in the world at the time okay so for this reason doctors study people as much as they can to then publish the results and i'll go i've got a couple of proper sort of in-depth examples but over the years there's some interesting things here. so one of the earliest cases involved a norwegian woman who was hit with shrapnel during world war II. Okay. she then developed a german accent now due to brain damage now i'm going to come on to it later but one of the one of the things that's really unfortunate and and especially for this lady here is that she was then shunned by the people she lived with and her town especially you can understand in that time
0: yeah well i was going to say it's unfortunate that she's decided to pick up well not decided she's picked up a german accent given the nature of the time and how she sustained her injuries yeah
1: yeah no absolutely and there'll be more of it later on but there was um There was a case in 2016 that detailed the story of a 34-year-old African woman whose doctors related her foreign accent syndrome to schizophrenia. She showed up in the emergency room with a British accent despite never having lived in Britain. Um, She had faced immense financial and emotional distress in the months before the visit to the ER and and doctors had diagnosed her with schizophrenia. In 2018, a 65-year-old Spanish-speaking woman with multiple sclerosis began speaking in Spanish with English accent. And there'll be a little, a little bit further on. There'll be so, again some of the reasons because MS I, I found really unusual. This example says why it it could be a cause, and it says M, MS destroys the myelin that coats the nerves, disrupting their ability to send signals. Okay. And I'm going to skip this this one because I've got it in a little bit more depth later on. Yeah, there's a, a, a doctoral scientist called h whitaker first coined the term foreign accent syndrome in 82 so even though the first case on register was in 02 it was only in 82 that the term foreign accent syndrome came into being and again he confirmed that for it to be strictly that the person must be monolingual so they can only speak one language they must have had dam yeah they must have had damage to their central nervous system that affects their speech and their speech must be perceived as subjectively sounding foreign by themselves or clinicians. Um, so again, a lot of this is all about it being perceptual rather than they can absolutely say, yeah, that's an Italian accent or that's a an American accent.
0: Right, okay, okay.
1: Most people with foreign accent syndrome show symptoms of psychological or neurological condition.
0: Do you know if it's specific within a particular um, culture? So if it's like Western cultures...
1: No, the only thing I have seen some stats here, but it says it's more commonly pronounced in females than it is in males. And I think all the examples I gave above, they were all female. Right. So in a meta-analysis of 112 patients with FAS, 97% were adults and 67% were female. The typical age range for the disease is around 25 to 49. And and this is the thing, I wouldn't have even thought about this, but in cases where handedness was recorded. The majority of patients were right handed. (laughs) I know, I know, and that's the thing that you don't think about. So they said only in twelve point five percent of cases did the patients have previous exposure to the accent they later seemed to develop. So what's that eighty seven eighty seven and a half percent had never even been anywhere near the accent that they start speaking or taking on.
0: That that one's strange because you'd feel like it would need to have been acknowledged and or learned at some point, don't you? Because I think in the media there was um, it was a few when I say a few years ago, it's probably like eight or nine years ago now. I'm pretty sure that there was a woman in the UK that had woken up after like a coma and began speaking in a Chinese accent, and she was yeah, on like it ITV be, News. That,
1: it might be the one I've got. I, do, do you know? what I can't remember. But I've even seen here people that wake up with a different regional dialect, so someone from the south starts speaking. Geordie, which for American <laughs> listeners is is you know at the north from the north of England. Imagine
0: going to bed talking like this and then waking up going "Why, man!" <laughs>
1: yeah. So even domestically, you know, re- regionality comes into into effect. Since it is very rare, it takes a multidisciplinary team, so they have to have all kinds of doctors and psychologists and neurologists to to do it. And 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 just like the one you mentioned, there are four types of FAS. So you've got And again, like I said, I hope to say these all properly. Neurogenic FAS is where it occurs after the central nervous system has been damaged. Developmental FAS is used where the accent is perceptible from an early age, e.g. children who have always spoken with an accent, which I find fascinating there as well. Right, okay. Psychogenic is used when it's psychologically induced associated with a psychiatric disorder or clear psychiatric traits. And then the final one is mixed FAS, where patients develop the disorder after neurological damage, but the accent change has such a profound impact on the self-perception and identity that they'll modify or enhance the accent to make it fit with the new persona. So that's why that introduces a psychological element
0: there. I feel like it would be interesting to have somebody interviewed who's got this condition.
1: It's, like I said, I I really wanted to, to look into this because... again i yeah i'd remember seeing on the news and again we'll come on to it it's it's about how people are affected by it and and so you know initially you know the press is reported as oh it's a funny thing a a, a, someone from the south england woke up speaking geordie or someone from america is speaking english but it is what they go through and i'll come on to it after people assume that they're doing it just naturally and aren't thinking about it but they are saying that the person suffering from it does actually know that they're doing something different. So it's not a natural thing to them. They, they're aware they've got a speech problem.
0: Right. So I guess in, in that sense that you're considering it from the perspective of like if somebody slurs speech because it's literally a physical thing that cannot be changed almost, isn't it? Because the way in which you pronounce words is a physical thing, obviously, with the yeah. nature where you move your mouth. So surely it must just be like in the nature of like, oh well. It, again, you said after brain injury. So let's say that somebody has a stroke and has like a partial paralysis. They slur their words potentially. I guess it's to be considered in the same vein as that, really, isn't it?
1: Yeah. Well, a lot of the we'll come onto it. Treat main treatment really is um, like speech therapy again and and training. Um, so. One of the again, one of the fascinating things I've seen here is they've said one of the symptoms of the syndrome is that the patient moves their tongue or jaw differently while speaking. So it creates a different sound. So it is like something fundamentally has changed. So it's again, it's not them it's not them mimicking an accent as I think like we're saying how something has changed to make it sound like they are.
0: Yeah, yeah. Because I think that's what you said at the very beginning, wasn't it? It's not necessarily that they're turning around and their brain is impersonating the accent. It's characteristics of words that make them sound like a particular accent. Yeah.
1: yeah. And, you know, treatment involves intense speech therapy. And about a quarter of FAS patients go through remission after treatment. Now, I've got two two cases here. I'll go through them quickly. Karen Butler from Illinois, she went in for dental surgery uh, but the article here says she left more than left with more than numb gums. She also picked up a pronounced foreign accent. She's never traveled to Europe or lived in a foreign country. She's an American, she says, born and bred. Uh, but she doesn't sound like one anymore. Her accent is a hodgepodge of English, Irish, and a bit of other accents.
0: Huh.
1: Yeah, it started a year and a half ago when she was put under anesthesia, while the dentist removed several teeth. I just went to sleep and I woke up, my mouth was sore and swollen and I talked funny. And the dentist said, you'll talk normal when the swelling goes down. The swelling went away, but the foreign accent didn't. And a neurologist in Portland diagnosed her with foreign accent syndrome. And again, they said it's usually associated with brain injury or uh, stroke, something similar to that just want to scoot down to the end they're saying that she may have suffered a small stroke while under anesthesia but she won't know for sure unless she has a brain scan and unfortunately she says her, her insurance company won't pay for one in the meantime it's possible that she can get her American accent back through intensive speech therapy but unlike other people with FAS who become depressed by their change in accent she quite likes a new one and said it's made her more outgoing and a good conversation starter so that is one take on it so at least she's taken it in a way, I guess, you know, she's saying she she's got it now, so she's she's gonna live with it. This one I think is one you may mentioned. So Julie Matthias, uh despite having lived in the UK her whole life, she found that she no longer speaks with an English accent, sounding she now sounds French or Chinese instead.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the one.
1: Yeah, and now she's had it for four years. So four years ago was the last time i heard my own voice she's one of a handful of people in the uk with the syndrome and although their speech is completely fluent their voices have taken on odd characteristics that make them sound as if they grew up in another country
0: can i just say as well just before you go any further do you know what one of the worst things about this condition is is the fact that anywhere that you go depending on the accent that you've got people must think that you're taking the piss yeah yeah as in like wherever you so for instance like this this woman i imagine is an English woman. Yeah, yeah, she's English, yeah, yeah. And so she's taken on potentially a Chinese accent. You can imagine potentially being in the wrong situation in which people would be horrifically offended in the way in which you're talking, when in actual fact it's actually a physical condition.
1: Especially when it's so rare.
0: Yeah, that yeah, that's the thing. How do you how do you explain that? If you walked up to somebody in the street, and you said, "Oh, I'm really sorry for my accent. It's it's or the way I'm speaking. It's because I've got a rare medical condition that only affects 65 people that are living right now." There is no chance you'd get away with that. I just don't think anyone would ever take you seriously.
1: She believes hers was caused by a car accident that was followed by blinding migraines um she said her brain felt like it was going to explode and her joints are so tender so painful you can't breathe she said about the migraines, she'd rather have more babies than go through pain again she said and then yeah so, so basically she said when uh, when after a few months these painful episodes started or sorry a few months after these painful episodes started something even stranger happened and her voice started shifting accent the change soon caught the attention of people in her beauty salon and clients talked to her as if she didn't understand English anymore. So, yeah, just because of the fact she had that accent, they were talking yeah. to her like she was foreign. Yeah. So they said they, they, they can't do it. You know, they, they don't know what's happened. There was a, I've seen it here, basically, yeah, a compounding the issues with identity, people often have to deal with surprising and sometimes unkind responses from those around them. Accents are an important way for us to form boundaries between social groups. And accordingly, some of the people in someone's created a book of this, they report feeling marginalized like a foreigner in my own country, someone has said. And they've even experienced racism. And one person who suffered said, I had a taxi driver try to charge me double fare for a journey I've taken before.
0: Wow.
1: Yeah. And two bus drivers. Another one said two bus drivers treated me like I was deaf, stupid and belittled me. Um, And even friends can start to feel suspicious. So, yeah, people who have got it have have suffered. You know, they they call it here, yeah, unkind responses and potentially ra- racism. Yeah, but imagine taking a, a a taxi for a journey you've done, and then your your accent's changing, and you're you're being charged double fare for the same journey. So one of the things, yeah, they've said is that often you can't treat this directly, but it might be a sign of something under underlying neurologically, or right, or anybody. Okay. So often people may go under investigation for that. It may have maybe come across, uh, come on from a blow to the head or face, surgery to the face or brain, multiple sclerosis, brain tumors, or migraine. And yeah, I'll finish with yeah, in 2019, an analysis of 49 people with the syndrome found that the most common linked conditions were severe headaches or migraine, stroke, surgery to the face or mouth, and seizure. Of those 49 people, most reported having a foreign accent for two months to 18 years with a mean length of three years. Wow, 18 so years is a long 18 time. 18 years, yeah, yeah. Like like I said, I chose this because I, I found it fascinating at the time because initially people can see it as a, not as a joke story, but it's seen as, oh, it's, so Someone's what, they're talking in a different accent. But it's a fact, like I said, you know, and I've missed, can't see the the, the line, but it's like people are saying that, yeah, they are acutely aware that they're speaking in a different voice, which gives them even more trauma. Yeah. And that they are, like you said, they are treated badly or differently by those around them.
0: I feel like it's difficult to explain as well, only from the perspective of the doctors and the research that's been done into this turns around and says, oh, this is usually the way in which it occurs. But in reality, are we completely sure? about how this happens or how that happens and and what necessarily immediately caused it. I think that must be a difficult thing to try and explain because I think, if I remember rightly, when the um, lady had the story with the Chinese accent, I'm pretty sure that that went viral on places like Twitter and Facebook and all of the comment sections were filled with, she's just putting it on. But in and of itself, I guess it's like the context of why would you do that, number one? But also, number two, it's like a registered, recognised medical issue.
1: Well, I remember as a kid first seeing Tourette's on TV. Yeah. And again, that was seen as a similar thing. It was yeah. like they're putting it on. Yeah. But now um, it's more common. It's more known.
0: Yeah, I think you've had more exposure to a Tourette's as well because I think people in like mainstream media, have. have, have we've had programmes about it on television. We've seen yeah. TV personalities and internet personalities with Tourette's as well. because so I think that's what it was. It was always seen as like a fad and it was like a laughable thing almost because I remember they had the programmes following people with Tourette's and they just used to clip together basically like the most inappropriate like swears or like ticks um together for a one hour episode but that made it look like it was just a case of like oh this is something entertaining basically as opposed to like, and that's
1: it and and it was like oh it's all oh, they're just trying to swear and get away with it but they don't also then see the the, the body ticks that come with it yeah, and yeah how stressful and tiring those must be as well you know and they don't see that part of it They, you know the the, the media i think at the time were just portraying how, how do i word this by just airing the swearing made it look like it was a silly
0: yeah yeah they presented it in a way that wasn't something that you took seriously they presented it in a way that was supposed to be entertaining as opposed to yeah this is what this condition actually does
1: yeah and actually sorry i've got one more thing on this i, I did find so it was the one i said at the end about Uh, the taxi journey and the bus, it was this British lady, sorry, but there's also an element here. So she said she also found it difficult to look at her own reflection because she didn't see herself as herself anymore because, because she spoke in the accent, you know, she said she was even finding it difficult to look at herself, her her own reflection. But what what I was going to say was, and it's something, this just highlights something they do with brain surgery as well. So they said, basically, what it is, is it can also be the rhythm of which you say something. So this journalist was saying, as I speak to her, I can see why mistakes between what accent is created. She pronounces accent with a heavier emphasis on the second syllable. That reminds me of my French teacher. But the staccato rhythm might sound like a Chinese accent. And it's this bit here, right? They said, often the subtle signatures can be traced down, uh, traced to no neurological damage. For instance, Barbara Tomasino, who's based in the University of Udine in Italy, recently examined a patient with a brain tumour. Sometimes she sounded like she was South American. Sometimes she spoke with an English accent. It was a very strange way of speaking Italian. The patient, and it says here, the patient was awake while a surgeon operated on the tumour, allowing researchers to probe the electrical activity and functions of the cells around the cancer. Although it sounds painful, this is standard procedure that helps a surgeon work out where the tumour ends. Combined with MRI scans, watching the neural activity in this way, it also allows them to detect the cells involved in controlling the mouth and larynx. So by pressing on that region, the tumor may therefore have been disrupting her ability to plan the complex tongue and mouth movements needed to talk normally. So it's that thing about operating on the brain while the patient is awake.
0: I guess it's like an active thing of seeing how or not how that person is affected because you're literally getting like a window into the computer that's controlling it all like I said, I think that this was always when it was portrayed in the media seen as a bit of a joke, but knowing again, I've never really looked into it properly. I just know that I've seen stories of it, whether or not it was something that I knew was something that was recognized as a medical condition, but it must be a scary thing because you're waking up and I guess it's like losing what, what is almost like a basic function that you would have just had and never valued it like that. Imagine waking up and the voice that comes out of you isn't your voice
1: well that's it you've grown up i mean you're what uh sort of 20 25 26 you've been you for 26 years yeah yeah and then all of a sudden tomorrow you're someone from south america
0: yeah because when she said and talked about the fact that she looked in the mirror and it wasn't her it's almost like body dysmorphia is it i don't know if body dysmorphia is the right like phrase to use um but it's like it's almost kind of created a sense of like dysmorphia in the fact that she's looking at herself and actually feeling like an out-of-body experience because the person she's looking at has changed because a physical trait of hers has changed. And that must be a scary thing.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think the fact is that we're talking about it here, which obviously means, and, and the fact is there's over a hundred people or, or so, etc. cetera, who've had it documented. It's a fact that it is a possible condition and it sounds like it could happen to anyone, but it is so rare that a lot of people don't know about it now and it is still treated by some as a joke condition. And I think that's a horrible thing, because it could happen. It feels like it could happen. It is ultra rare, granted, from everything that it's saying about how it can come on. It it feels like there there is a chance that anyone could have it. It's not that, like you said, certain percentage of either the world or a certain culture or a certain region can have it. It could happen anywhere to anyone.
0: It's a very strange one. I feel yeah, again, do you know what it is? do you know what I think slightly not scary about all of the things that we might talk about is the fact that Again, there's no rhyme or reason behind any of the people being necessary, apart from the fact that 67% of them were women. But it is true. It's like one of those things that could potentially affect anyone. Imagine having a car accident, and then you are that one in a million that is yeah, yeah. yeah scary. Because, scary. again, the 100 people that are dealing with it now never would have thought that in any instance that would have been them.
1: No, no. And on the flip side as well, could you imagine if you've had it for five years and then it goes... Are you readjusting again? I mean, you must at that point, I mean, whoever's had it for 18 years.
0: Does that yeah, that is become the new, you? That, yeah, that is the yeah. new you at that point. And imagine it subsiding after 18 years and you going back to sound the way that you did before. So like I said, yeah, that's foreign accent syndrome. But like I said, it's strange because it's almost like the physical aspect of t- speaking a different in a different way then creates mental issues. Yeah, because of the effect that it has on your mind so it's quite you break
1: your arm or you 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 break your elbow like you did a few months ago you put it in a sling you can't use that arm for a bit yeah but But you know it's still still there and it's coming back yeah yeah whereas yeah this all the other things and no one's going to treat you very differently or differently because you've got that arm in a sling
0: yeah yeah yeah
1: but, but yeah, but imagine if you, yeah, you, you break your arm, you go and and people are trying to charge you more for a taxi ride or, or a bus do you. Do you know what I mean You, you, totally. wouldn't,
0: you wouldn't do th- that right. I think that says a lot more about society just in general, well, yeah. evidently yeah, 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 honestly. Yeah. could you imagine? Yeah. Anyway, sorry, uh, over to you.: I've got a relatively quick one. I guess it's a rare condition in and of itself, but technically it can happen to anyone given the right circumstances. So this is hematidrosis. I hope I've pronounced that correctly. And this is basically a condition, it's particularly rare, in which a human sweats blood. Wow. Now, in terms of signs and symptoms, it's basically blood usually coming from wow. um, forehead, nails, um, and basically just all over the skin. Face, chest, back, that sort of thing. Um Jeez episodes of hematidrosis need to make sure I'm pronouncing correctly um, maybe may basically follow afterwards headaches abdominal pain and that sort of thing so basically the the blood that comes out of you looks basically a little bit diluted and is like tinged with blood essentially right. um, but okay. some people have bright red blood that comes out of them which is literally you know actual blood as if you cut yourself open-hmm it can result in the skin becoming particularly tender now in terms of causes it's basically blood vessels underneath the skin in the sweat glands rupturing causing them to basically explode so almost like if you okay, strain yourself okay. at the gym sometimes you can literally burst a blood vessel is where they phrase it yeah, yeah. and is usually caused and onset because of extreme stress both physical and emotional so basically what it does is it invokes your body into do you know that like psychological fight or flight response and basically your blood vessels just hemorrhage in your sweat glands, and as a result, blood leaks into your sweat glands, and you sweat blood from all over your body. Basically, the cause of hematidrosis, I hope I'm again, I am hoping am pronouncing that correctly, um, is basically where blood vessels rupture um, in the sweat glands, and they cause the blood to basically leak into the sweat glands, and then as a result, you bleed, but just from everywhere. Again, it's suspected that extreme fear and or stress basically invoke like your body's psychological fight or flight response where your heart starts beating quicker and all of that sort of thing and as a result it basically bursts blood vessels in your body a little bit like going to the gym might do if you decide to lift um (laughs) weights too heavy um in terms of diagnosis and research done um obviously people that have like low platelet counts are more susceptible because your blood doesn't clot when it comes out of you but there is no connection between platelet count Or any kind of like issues with like your blood congealing in relation to this particular condition. It is basically all as a result of stress and anxiety, pretty much.
1: So it's not that the person will always sweat blood. Is it that they are prone to sweat blood? So it's not that every time they sweat, it will be blood or is it?
0: Yeah, no. So it's not necessarily every time they do, but this happens in. So obviously everybody experiences extreme stress, but in particular situations, some people are susceptible to basically bleed blood because, sorry, to to, to sweat blood because their blood vessels literally cannot take it basically. So...
1: That must be terrifying to see. Yeah, that. yeah.
0: That's the thing. Yeah. I mean, imagine turning up to like an accident, an emergency, and you're just like blood is coming out of not, not, not a wound, but literally the skin itself.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: And to me, that is a terrifying prospect. So there were basically lots of research notes. So it's actually dermatologists that oversee this area of medicine, which I thought was a little bit strange. I felt like it's not really a skin condition in and of itself. But basically, the research that's done previously notes that there are lots of incidences, not lots of incidences, but more common incidences of this condition in people that are awaiting execution.
1: Okay, okay.
0: And I guess that's because you are sitting there, it's the context of your life ending, the amount of stress that must be flowing through a person must create such a physical reaction in your body in terms of your heart, your blood pressure, that it must literally burst blood vessels, but in every yeah, but everywhere, basically. There was a, a testament from Leonardo da Vinci who described a soldier who sweated blood before battle. Really? And there were cases during the London Blitz. Wow. So, well, I guess, so... again, when you, you, you're living in a situation in which you don't know whether or not you might live because you hear an air raid siren and then potentially there's a bomb coming through your ceiling, um, I guess you could probably understand a person's anxiety and stress there.
1: So, so like you said, so it's just that, there's so much stress that in certain people, the cells can't take it. And they just kind of, what is it like, explode and they have to go. It's, it's under the surface of the skin. So it, it's only got one way to go.
0: Yeah, basically. So what happens is it's the blood vessels that supply your sweat glands basically just burst. And then as a result, the blood has got nowhere to go but through your sweat glands. So you just excrete the blood through your body like sweat. Wow. Wow! imagine being stressed enough to be in that situation that that's what's happening and then seeing that happen can't make the situation any better
1: no 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 and 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 that's what i'm saying so even for those around you i mean like i said it must be terrifying because all of a sudden you just got blood coming out of you
0: yeah no reason
1: i guess it's not a condition that needs treatment but did you say there was anything underlying
0: um no so again, like I said, in terms of um, research already done, there was no links between anybody with any particular blood and or bleeding disorders um, in having this condition or experiencing it. And there's no necessary treatment, I guess, because it's a case of blood vessels repairing themselves and you not being stressed. They did actually use, there was a group of researchers that used beta blockers, which are the ones that reduce like anxiety, I believe. That's like yeah, the, yeah. the drug that reduces anxiety. And it, in people that experience this condition it had a significant reduction in the frequency of this happening. So basically, it reduced the stress, which evidently must have reduced the body's physical response to the stress, which meant the blood vessels didn't burst and they didn't bleed blood. Sorry, didn't bleed blood. Didn't sweat blood. blood, Yeah. Yeah.
1: Again, and and kind of amazing is not the right word to use here, but it is amazing what stress can do to the body. I mean, we've seen it from everything to, to kind of putting weight on to kind of making you feel tired to the other extreme sweating blood i mean it's just a it's just amazing what what the body can do to itself
0: yeah it's very strange as well because whilst the beta block has helped there's research to identify that there was no change in the incidence of cases so there's an argument that's been made that modern life is more stressful or we stress about more things in modern life than we did you know 200 years ago yeah but the number of incidents hasn't increased which leads researchers to believe that Alongside just the nature of stress, there must be some form of underlying cause that means that a certain number of people experience this. Because if it was all stress related, you would have expected to have seen the statistics see an increase in the number of people experiencing this condition. But you haven't seen that, which is again strange.
1: No, I again never heard of it. I'd, I mean, in the past, I don't think it's something you hear about now. But it could probably come under the um, like the phenomena episode. Have you ever heard of stigmata?
0: Well, funnily enough, I'm glad you said that. Yeah, basically, this is a, a bit associated with claims for the stigmata. So stigmata is obviously basically a a condition where is, is like the appearance of like the, the wounds of Jesus Christ. and You, and you bleed from
1: where Jesus bled on the yeah, crucifixion. yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: So basically, this is kind of an explanation for the claims um, for for instances of where people have experienced stigmata, which again, is a little bit strange, because I guess you'd have to link stress in their life somehow to this. But potentially, if you put something that's somebody that's potentially in a situation where they might be, have some sort of kind of mental illness background on top of potentially something religious, is it possible that their body could create enough stress that would then cause those wounds, which then they would put forward as... I guess there's probably particular instances in which that's been the case. The only but... thing
1: I'd say about that though is that stigmata is specifically focused in certain parts of the body, isn't it? So I think it's going to be the hands, the feet, isn't it? So yeah, I don't know. In in this instance that you're talking about, I, I can't I can't even pretend to remember the the name of it. Is it like they sweat through all their body? Is it or is it like is it like they sweat from their head? I mean, I guess that that's going to be case by case potentially
0: yeah it depends case by case however um most common places are the forehead nails um belly button but again all other skin surfaces can be affected
1: nails feels really weird the head i get because the, the head is it feels like it's quite thin i'm touching my head as we're talking about this yeah, but also like um, you
0: sweat from your head a lot like if it's hot yeah, you yeah. feel beads of sweat coming from your head don't you
1: yeah but the nails i find the nails odd i find the nails odd
0: but I don't know whether or not that potentially is like a weak point for like blood vessels yeah, at like the end of hands and, fingers yeah, yeah, and that yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. Is it like the easiest place to think first, but then again, you know, it's difficult because the, the whole stigmata issue is like a completely separate like, issue yeah. in yeah. itself. But would somebody who turned around and experienced bleeding of the nails then associate that to be with the hands, which then is indicative of like stigmata wounds. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Stigmata in and of itself is something that we could have talked about. I don't know if you've got that
1: no no it didn't and it just reminded me because i'm saying that's the only thing similar to that i've heard of and do you know what again it's kind of something i used to hear about a lot when i was a kid but i just don't hear it now and <laughs> it's only you saying yeah. that has reminded yeah. me
0: yeah yeah um there was actually one separate to that as well which i didn't do any research into but On a separate issue, it's like crying blood is also a condition, and that's commonly seen in women, again, strangely, and is induced by kind of hormone imbalances and that sort of thing. But yeah, there was lots of individual cases of people that like wept blood like up to five times a day. Um, And again, the blood could be diluted up to like literally bright red. Like blood as blood that you would cut yourself really kind of scary things i don't know what's almost i don't know if you'd look at something as being if you experienced it it'd be more scary i don't know if bleeding through the skin or bleeding from your eyes would be more scary
1: it's easy for someone who's not had it but i would almost think is bleeding from the eyes easier because you can almost think that maybe you've got some damage there and the blood's coming out of your eyes but coming out of your skin i I don't know so i said i'm not trying to trivialize it and it's not as easy for me to say it but I'd almost imagine, like eyes, oh, could you have burst a blood vessel in your eye or something? Or can you, can you explain it away as it's blood coming out of a natural place almost? Whereas blood coming out of your head or your hands or, you know, sort of your belly button or whatever. I, I, I don't know. I'd think, in my, in my view, probably easier to have it from the eyes.
0: Yeah, do you know what it is as well? It feels like now that I've read about these things, it's been trivialised in things like Bond. Do you remember in Casino Royale where the villain Le Chiffre in that bleeds from his eyes? He like cries blood. Oh, I don't remember that, no, Sorry, no. spoiler alert if you haven't <laughs> seen <laughs> Casino Royale in 2006 <laughs> or whenever it came out. Sorry, guys. But yeah, I just thought to myself, I was like, oh my God, that's actually a real thing. Like in and of itself. Yeah, I was, yeah. it, it almost made the villain scarier today. Like when I turned around and did the research into finding out about the fact that people can then bleed from their eyes as well i didn't know whether or not that was scarier in the fact that i'd seen that in a film but yeah very very strange
1: but now you've you you know that's a real thing in your mind then do you think that it trivializes it then if they're making it like a bond villain do that
0: yeah do you know what it is it's because they've made it like a character trait but they've made it a character yeah Yeah. for a villain to make it it make him look more evil almost because it's like oh this is a terrible thing happening to a terrible person almost so that's the thing now that i've kind of seen it in that context number one it makes the idea of that being a real thing more terrifying but also it's true in the way that you've perceived it because it's a case of oh we've made this terrible characteristic or we've 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 made we put this characteristic with this person to make them look more terrible and like terrifying which i feel if that's what they've
1: (laughs) done If that's what they've done and it's not just a But yeah, that that's the thing. You can look at things now and, and it feels like, oh, that's just a a film tactic. But now you, you, you know you've read this condition. You can now start looking at it and think, right, start putting a couple of things together.
0: <laughs> what have you got for your second one?
1: Right. This is my last one. And again, on the surface of it, I chose this because it sounds like, you know, people will have made fun of this one. But when you then start digging into it, you see that it actually, it's not funny,
0: but it's just the way in which you say, so people make fun of this one. I'm just like,
1: (laughs) well, no, because again, on the surface, right, I'll, 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 I'll get to it in a second. I won't start keep teasing, but on the surface, (laughs) it doesn't sound like a typically a, a bad one, right? It's called auto brewery syndrome. And what it is, is a condition that occurs when an overgrowth of certain types of fungus in the gut converts carbs into alcohol. Yeah. So again, that's what I'm trying to say. It sounds like it doesn't sound like it's overly, what's the word, taking its toll, toll on people. And you can see how it's going to be made fun of in the press. You know, like I, I think I saw someone saying, I ate a bag of chips and now I'm drunk kind of thing. <coughs> yeah. You know, yeah. That, that's the thing. So basically you've got, as we know, numerous microorganisms live in the gastrointestinal tract. Um, bacteria make up the vast majority of these organisms with fungi accounting for less than 0.1% of microbes in the human gut. Yeast and other fungi, fungi feed on the sugars and starches in food, which they then convert into energy. And this process also creates waste in the form of carbon dioxide and ethanol, which is a type of alcohol. The ethanol that fungal fermentation produces enters a bloodstream and travels through the body. People who have auto-brewery syndrome may have high blood alcohol levels after ingesting a small quantity of alcohol or no alcohol at all. And auto brewery syndrome can also cause the same physical and psychological symptoms that occur when a person is intoxicated or hungover. So, um, and before I carry on, I think the the thing for me is the fact also that it's got brewery in the name of it feels a bit bleeding in a way. Yeah, Yeah, cheap. yeah. yeah, They've
0: like cheapened, this is what I mean. They've cheapened like the the...
1: severity of it, yeah, yeah, or the impact, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, like the foreign accent syndrome, it can be a result of an underlying condition. And certain medical conditions and factors can increase a person's chance of developing it. And they include Crohn's disease, irritable bowel syndrome, small intestinal bacteria overgrowth, short bowel syndrome, diabetes, obesity and a weakened immune system. Frequent or long term antibiotic use can alter the gut microbiome, also resulting in fungal overgrowth.
0: So can I just ask as well then? So obviously you they so this is a person actually physically gets drunk because their body is taking yeah,
1: alcohol
0: yeah yeah so if you blew on a breathalyzer oh, sorry they're
1: not oh, sorry they're not the body they're not taking alcohol but the body's converting sorry it's, yeah, yeah, yeah yeah it's yeah, producing yeah, it. yeah,
0: yeah so technically yeah. if they brew but you wouldn't show us drunk if you blew on like a breathalyzer would you
1: this is a thing i don't know because ultimately if it is producing ethanol that is alcohol
0: yeah but it's not been now, ingested so i don't know how breathalyzers work but but it's, but i feel like
1: uh, yeah, I don't know. Now, well, we'll come on to it because it's been used or it's trying to be used as defence in a lot of drink driving right, cases. Amazing. So it has it has been it has been used.
0: Imagine someone using your condition to get over a fucking crime as well. How yeah, terrible yeah. that is.
1: Another common factor is it can actually also be like a high carb high sugar, so a lot of people with it often report having a high sugar high carb diet. The condition is rare and it was first reported in 1950.
0: Okay.
1: Um, since its discovery, researchers have diagnosed this syndrome in both adults and children. Um, and however, in 2019, the British Medical Journal believed that it is an underdiagnosed medical condition, so they think there's a lot more. Now, the symptoms, as you, you guess with it, would include brain fog, fatigue, dizziness, slurred speech, mood changes, delirium. It can also cause, and, and this is the thing, those along with some of these could just be you'd put it off as something else. It could be a, a a number of conditions. So it can also cause headaches, belching, nausea, vomiting, loss of coordination, memory problems, or difficulty con- concentrating. Diagnose it. You'd have to go for a laboratory and observational tests. Some doctors will use a, a carbohydrate challenge test for it. After a few hours, they'll check the person's blood alcohol level. People who do not have auto brewery syndrome have almost undetectable blood alcohol levels. An increase in blood alcohol levels after the carbohydrate challenge test may therefore indicate the auto brewery syndrome. That would mean that they would be flagged
0: up to me. Yeah, yeah. God, imagine that. Sorry, not to make a joke of it, but it's true. Imagine going out for something to eat and then coming back and actually being stopped. Like There must be incidences in which people have tried to claim this and it's just been flat out rejected, but they've got a legitimate reason for it.
1: Well, I'll come on to a, an article shortly, um, but treatment really, they said there's only, there's the main one is going to be dietary change, so avoiding carbs and processed foods. People who restrict carbs can try to eat more protein to help them feel fuller. Doctors can treat it with antifungals and in some cases antibiotics. Okay. Many people resume their regular diet and lifestyle after one treatment. However, some people experience recurring symptoms even after being asymptomatic. And it's, you know, it's managing your weight and keep viewing your dietary needs, basically. This is a BBC article in 2015, and it was titled The Man Who Gets Drunk on Chips. And he said, Yes, a guy called Nick Hess didn't know what was happening at first. It was weird. I'd eat some carbs, and all of a sudden, I was goofy and vulgar. He would get inexplicably sick with stomach pains and headaches. Every day for a year, I would wake up and vomit. Sometimes it would come on over the course of a few days. Sometimes it was like, bam, I'm drunk. No alcohol had passed his lips, but not everyone believed him. And and this is the thing, right? That The, the effects, just like foreign accent syndrome, the effect on other people. At one point, his wife even searched the house from top to bottom to find booze. Yeah. So she was looking for him hiding booze. Yeah. Everyone was just giving me a rough time until my wife filmed me. And then I saw it. I did look drunk. He suffers, you know, he then came to realize he suffers from auto brewery syndrome, which is a very rare and controversial medical condition in which, well, we've said that, which the yeast in the gut turns carbs into excess alcohol in the blood. What's it like to live with this odd condition? And if it turns out that many people are being mistaken for alcohol abuse by everyone from their friends to the courts, what should we do about it? Experiences like Hess can be traced back to the 70s when researchers in Japan described a mysterious condition in patients with chronic yeast infections. In papers published at the Times, the research described how all of these patients had an abnormal liver enzyme, which meant they weren't getting rid of alcohol from the body. Everyone has a little bit of yeast in their guts, and when it interacts with the carbs and sugar from our food, it produces tiny amounts of alcohol. In the case of the Japanese patients, the extra yeast from the infection and the fact they ate a lot of carb-rich rice combined with the abnormal liver enzyme meant they couldn't process the alcohol quick enough. Barbara Cordell, head of nursing and health scientists in Texas, who's investigating the condition, um, she and her colleague, Justin McCarthy, were the first to identify the disorder in an otherwise healthy individual in the U.S. and verify it in a controlled environment. Um, her interest began in 20, uh, sorry, in 2005 when a friend of hers, we'll call him Joe, began experiencing symptoms of drunkenness. He was dizzy, nauseous, and maimed of exhaustion, just like you would after a night in the towels, despite claims that he hadn't even touched a single drop of the hard stuff. His wife began taking notes each time it happened, and on one occasion, Cordell remembers sitting around a table with the two of them and their son administering a breathalyzer test. They all drank a glass of wine and took another test. Joe's result was three times higher than any of the others around the table. Wow. So yeah, that clarifies it. Yeah, so he yeah. was testing higher than people who drank wine. Wow. He'd been admitted to hospital. Joe was fed a high, high carb, sorry.
0: No, 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 go on. I'll let you carry on because I have <laughs> got a question. <laughs> but you might answer it.
1: Joe was fed a high carb diet throughout the day and blood was drawn every two hours. At one point during the afternoon, Joe's blood alcohol levels rose to 120 milligram per 100 mil of blood. For an average sized man, that's the equivalent of seven shots of whiskey. It's, it's amazing, thing. isn't it? so basically following I'm, I'm going to try skip because I'm, I'm aware of the time on on analysis they found he had 400 percent more yeast in his gut than a, a person should do it was the highest amount of yeast i've ever seen in in, a, in one person in my entire career since then about 50 people have come forward claiming to have a similar condition although they expect the true number of cases in the us to be double that the problem is rarely do any of these people who have the abnormal liver enzyme that you see in the japanese studies so Oh, rarely any of those people have that so what's going on the problem arises when the yeast in your gut gets out of hand bacteria bacteria normally keeps the yeast in check but sometimes it takes over now the final thing i've got on this is forensic toxicologist wayne jones needs a little more persuading he recently retired from the swedish national board of forensic medicine in Linko- Linkoping, sweden After 40 years of medical experience, he says that any alcohol that we produced in the guts through the breakdown of carbohydrates has to pass through the liver before it comes out into the blood. In the liver, we have enzymes that process alcohol, so almost all of it is removed from the blood in in a so-called first-pass metabolism. Because of this process, Jones is not yet convinced that people can produce enough alcohol in the blood merely from the yeast imbalance alone to have any medical forensic significance. He's given his opinion in court several occasions as an expert witness in cases where a a lawyer of defendant caught drink driving has claimed that their client has undiagnosed auto brewery syndrome. Several people over the years have claimed that the alcohol measured in their blood wasn't caused by drinking beer, whiskey or wine but by the body itself. A couple of years ago in Sweden, one defense was accepted for the first time by a judge in the lower courts. The prosecution appealed, however, and Jones was asked to step in to give evidence. The driver was later found guilty of driving under the influence of alcohol. Yeah,
0: and and I think it talks a little bit more about that.
1: But yeah, again, really interesting, isn't it?
0: Yeah, I mean, as well, it's it's literally a case of, like, imagine going out and somebody turns around and offers you, like, a bag of crisps and you literally can't because you're driving or something. Like, that's the level of care that you have to have in your life when you've got this condition.
1: Yeah, I mean, you, you have to then, you have to totally change your way of life, either how you deal with having it or how you deal with trying not to bring it on
0: did you mention anything about like the liver in or damage sorry because i wonder if in incidences of people that have this condition there are more prevalent cases of like liver damage and that sort of thing because obviously the body's producing like pure alcohol and your liver is responsible for breaking that down isn't it
1: yeah so here we go so it was in in the 70s researchers in japan yeah they they found all the patients had an abnormal liver enzyme which meant they weren't getting they weren't great at getting rid of alcohol from the body. So I think what this this guy later on is saying is that most people will have it, so we should be getting rid of the alcohol through the body. So th- this is, for me, what that I can't correlate at the moment, where you've had a test where people are saying that they've sat down at a table and watched somebody eat carbs, and the people around him drink wine, and yeah. he's testing higher. So then this guy's saying that you can't use it as a defense because the liver should be getting rid of it
0: that still makes no sense from a perspective like that legally that makes no sense it's like, it's... it
1: feels to me though that there's enough here and it feels logical that the it's yeast and bacteria converting it into alcohol yeah we we've discussed all the way along you just need to, the body just to do something a little wrong or something that it shouldn't be doing to create a condition so why can't this be be a thing
0: yeah, yeah. And it's weird as well, because when you look at like the courts, like there is like a defence for murder, because sometimes there are people that do things like sleepwalking murders and that sort of thing. Like if you can prove that you've had a history of sleepwalking. So why in this instance is it so difficult to claim a defence where evidently there's evidence to support the fact that your body just makes you drunk?
1: Yeah, I mean, what he said is he said he doesn't want to say that paper that those Texas the Texan nurses did is isn't right. He just wants to see a lot more detailed information before he accepts the findings as proven fact.
0: Right, okay.
1: I guess, you know, you you run the risk of, can everyone use it as a defense? But then surely it's got to be easy to test it. If someone's gone to the pub, got absolutely hammered, then had an accident and says tries to claim that, surely you can do medical tests to prove it or not. I don't know if you're allowed to. I don't know how that works, but surely you can easily prove it
0: yeah yeah to me I feel like that's something that definitely needs to be um, investigated by courts at least
1: yeah again it's just and like I said the reason I chose was was because it just on on the surface it looks like it looks like it's not a serious one but you know the guy's wife was searching the house for hidden alcohol can you imagine how tense or or stressful that relationship must have got
0: and yeah yeah yeah. how many other
1: things we're seeing it's this yeah it's this yeah, it's terrible it's terrible and how many times maybe somebody's saying something and they're not believed
0: yeah 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 because that's the thing as well you must turn around and say i'm not doing any like, i'm i don't know because the thing is as well how much confusion must you have when people have said to you that you've been drunk or you like appeared drunk when you've got no acknowledgement of ever drinking anything like you yes. must think that you're going a bit crazy
1: Yeah, and, and it must be terrible like i said imagine if you have gone out and you've had i don't know like or extra large portion of chips or fries or something and then you do get pulled over and breathalyzed i mean horrific horrific so yeah that that was my last one auto brewery syndrome
0: that was i I actually did see that one when i was looking up strange conditions but i didn't (laughs) read too much into it do you want me to sign off with one more we'll run through it quick yeah yeah go on go on this is uh congenital insensitivity to pain
1: okay i think i'm i've heard of this i think
0: yeah i think if we were to give it like an overview and again potentially where we've seen it portrayed in film in the film kick-ass
1: yes (laughs) kick-ass obviously
0: gets his powers because he's stabbed and then he loses some like ability to feel pain in his like receptors or whatever it is um so this is basically a extremely rare condition in which a person cannot feel and has never ever felt physical pain Basically, the reason that this is super dangerous is lots of children that suffer with this condition actually die young. And that's because there are no illnesses that are ever picked up because they cannot feel any pain whatsoever. So in reality, pain's actually a good thing because pain tells your body when something's wrong. That is literally the only way to look at it. But in this instance where you can't do that, you do not pick up illnesses. You do not pick up fractures. And they actually said one of the most common things amongst children in this was cavities and tooth loss and tooth decay because they cannot feel any kind of pain in the mouth either. So obviously you wouldn't know if a tooth you have, you had a toothache or if you had any kind of um, issues with your teeth. And so they see a lot of um, like teeth needing to be pulled and cavities and that sort of thing in kids. So there are generally two types of non-response to pain. Um, One's insensitivity to pain that means painful stimulus isn't perceived. So basically they cannot describe the intensity or type of pain. So that is feeling absolutely no pain whatsoever. Like there is just no feeling. And then the other type is indifference to pain. So you can perceive that something's happening, but you don't actually feel it as pain so you can feel that there's something happening but it's it's it i guess almost it's like a touch as opposed to something really painful so someone puts a knife in you it's not painful you just know something's happening you just cannot yeah yeah, the body just does not register that as something that's painful and in reality i guess whilst them again like kick-ass will have turned around and put this across as like oh this is amazing because this person can fight and not feel anything yeah actually super super dangerous Again, in terms of causes, no necessary specific cause. There's theories that it's caused by an increased production of particular endorphins in the brain. And it has been treated once previously with a drug called nalox nalox naloxone? Naloxone. Naloxone. And it basically allowed a woman with congenital insensitivity to pain to experience it for the very first time. Which again, in and of itself, imagine having that condition, never feeling pain, and then yeah, I imagine that if you did experience it, you could stub your toe and it, well, stubbing your toe is one of the worst things in the world. Actually, um, you could experience, you know, the most like insignificant thing and it becomes the worst thing in the world because you've never experienced any kind of pain. Well,
1: that's the first thing that went through my mind was if you've never felt pain for like 20, 30 years, it's got to be so, I, I, you know, I say terrifying again, but it must be so unusual. You, you, you've never grown up with that. Yeah. So how yeah. do you process what that is?
0: And the thing is, I guess there's so many benefits to potentially curing this because, you know, what are some of the first symptoms of some of like potentially the worst illnesses that you can have? You've got pain in your back or a pain in your head, like you've got migraine type things or you've got a pain in your chest, that sort of thing. That is something that is just not picked up whatsoever. You have got no early warning sign for anything ever being wrong with you. And at some point, obviously, everybody's health fails them at some point. That's a pretty significant thing to be missing. I don't know if potentially people that suffer with this condition actually have a reduced life expectancy. But like I said, I did read that it's common for children that have this condition um, to basically die young because they can't pick anything up. And again, if you go to a doctor, how does a doctor pick anything up? Because you don't respond in a way that's indicative of you experiencing anything. You know, that first question that you get at the doctor, if you ever go to them with a particular issue, are you got any pain anywhere? You go to accident and emergency, have you got any pain anywhere? And you just can't answer that question.
1: Sorry, I can't remember if you said, at what point then would this be diagnosed? Because if, you know, at what point do you say, my kid never cries or my kid just never seems to get hurt? At what point do you turn that into, can I actually feel pain?
0: Well, this is the thing. And I think that's why it's an issue. Do you know, like your perception of kids, like you see them fall over, fall off slides. Sometimes they just bounce up because they either feel embarrassed and that sort of thing and they brush it off. What needs to happen for you potentially as a parent to say that's not normal yeah like does it take an arm being like having a compound fracture or something like that and you've got no reaction from from a child potentially because that's again what they what a lot of the research found is that it's lots of things like issues with teeth or it's potentially fractures so i've broken my elbow but i still had the facility to move it because the bone wasn't snapped Right. But yeah. I felt a hell of a lot of pain when I tried to move my arm. People that had this condition would have no acknowledgement whatsoever of that pain in their arm, even though the bone's broken.
1: And do you know what, right? I, again, just because everything we've done, we focus on what the bad things can be on it. Can you imagine if a kid maybe has gone in for a random x ray or something or scan? I don't know what position that would be in, but then they find they've got like a couple of old broken bones. Yeah. And did they look at the parents?
0: Yeah, yeah, could you imagine? Yeah.
1: If it's never been reported, it's like, have you covered something up? I mean, I wonder if that's ever come about. But you'd think by that point, something must have come out that the, the child can't feel pain. I, I just find that it, it, it's just pain is, and this sounds terrible, pain is so fundamental to being human, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. You can't yeah, imagine yes. not having it.
0: It's, it's a really, really strange phenomenon.
1: Like I said, three bad things. One getting dangerous you know doing dangerous things as a kid because you don't know that putting your hand on the on the stove isn't going to burn you two yeah undiagnosed conditions like you've broken an arm and it just heals over or you fractured an arm and it heals over and then three yeah not being able to give early warning signs for a condition that's that's yeah
0: Well, I'm actually glad that you mentioned burns as well, because again, one of the most common injuries amongst people with congenital insensitivity to pain is burns, because you would put your hand on a boiling tray out of the oven and there would be no pain whatsoever. You would just know until you basically either smelt something or looked at your hand and the skin was torn off your hand because you cannot physically feel that. And that is a weird thing to think about in the context of like, if I touch that tray that's come out of the oven for half of a second, I feel it. But imagine uh, yeah. being able to put pick that up and there is absolutely nothing that happens. It's like you're picking the tray up when it's cold coming out of the dishwasher. And, or something and oh my like. God,
1: that just makes me cringe at what, you know, or, or real in horror what how that what they must do. Because I, you know, this is where I admit, like, you know, the, the, the stupid stuff I've done. I remember once going to get a tray out of the oven and being so absent-minded that I didn't put the oven glove on. I grabbed it and literally it's like you said it was for half a second but my god the pain I felt so could you imagine if if you're able to hold on to that and yeah what what must that, that that's still got to damage the hand but at what point do you realize that it is like you said is it when you smell something which I know sounds disgusting but that can be the only thing right
0: yeah this is what I mean so this is the thing all of the traditional indicators that you would have for not doing something or doing something dangerous don't exist. So you have to rely on everything else, whether it just be your mental awareness of a situation, because you must have to be so careful. You could get hit by a car and just have no, or fall off a bike potentially, do you know what I mean, like, you know, there have been instances where people have just fallen over and, you know, you've, you've smacked your head, but all of a sudden you feel ill later on in the evening. And you realize that you've done damage. You just have no acknowledgement of that whatsoever. Like what? what But what do you do? Do you do you have to go and have a scan every time you've fallen over? Do you have to go and have a scan every yeah. time you've knocked your head? It's it's the weirdest thing, like with people that have that condition, you'd feel like you just want to put them in an MRI machine every six months and just scan yeah. everything. Yeah. yeah.
1: I wonder if that's the answer to our earlier question was depends on the severity of the injury you have. Like at some point, if you've, if you've damaged a bone enough, even though you can't feel pain, you might find that you can't move the arm or that you you can't move those fingers the same way you could. So I'm wondering if that can be, which again, isn't the greatest thing to rely on because you could be putting, you you could be damaging it more. You just don't know. it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Not good. Is it? genuinely very strange and there's actually a particularly interesting incidence of this. So there's a particular village in Sweden and it's called Vitangi or Vitangai and it's in northern Sweden and there's nearly 40 cases that have been reported there and Mm. as of 2010, so I know it's still 10 years ago, however there was only 780 people living in the town in 2010 so that is an incidence of 5% of the town.
1: Yeah. That, that so, feels unusual, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, genetically, there must be something. So again, there's basically genes that are implicated. Now I won't get into the science because there's just lots of letters and lots of numbers all relating to particular genes. Um, but again, studies showed that there was like six members of a particular family with inherited pain insensitivity, and there was basically a mutation in a particular gene, which changed again. Going to sound like a computer, basically changed the encoding of a particular receptor. That gave your body the sense of pain, right? So it's basically all to do with genes, DNA, and the fact that there's just something that is—I guess not saying—not saying it's not wired correctly, but is wired differently—that basically just stops your body from feeling any kind of sensitivity to any receptor in your body. It does make me think, though, as well. Like, do do people that not experience the pain also just like what? What is your experience of like touch, for instance? So, can you feel a person touching you? and is it just a case of the physical pain in and of itself so you can feel the touch of a person's hand but when they punch you you can feel the touch of the hand but just not the pain that comes with it it's all very strange
1: what about the other way then if someone's slowly pinching you but it gets harder and harder
0: yeah like i'm I'm thinking of
1: punch there's an impact but if you were imagine you weren't looking and someone pinched you might feel the sensation but you know, there's a certain point where once you start squeezing, that starts hurting. So how how would that feel to that person? Yeah.
0: Yeah. But this is the thing. I mean, if they weren't look, if a person was with this condition wasn't looking, you could bring a hammer down on their hand. Yeah. And there'd just be nothing. And like I said, actually way more dangerous than you would ever imagine. <laughs> and also anybody with um, congenital insensitivity pain, if you do want to make a complaint against kick-ass, I'm all here to support it now. Because I've learned about your condition. <laughs> because again, it's a bit like the bleeding from the eyes thing. It's been used as like a gimmick <laughs> yeah, to, yeah, yeah, a, to, yeah. a, to a superhero character. But yeah, very, very strange one to end on.
1: Okay, cool. Yeah. So before we go, the new feature.
0: Yeah, before we go, the new feature. So this is actually something that I forgot in the last episode. Um, did we do before we go in the last episode?
1: Yeah, I did this fact about gold. In the oh
0: that's the one yeah and all the gold in the earth. so we need yeah. to find a way to dig to the center and the core of the earth in this week i'm actually going to bring up something from the previous episode and it was a law that i forgot because we were so intent on talking about <laughs> not being able to take cows down the motorway in the uk <laughs> and not wearing suits of armor in parliament and stuff but the law that i saw and it was utterly absurd and also i'll have to forward the sketch to you dan that i saw because i forgot to do it the other day is that it is illegal in China to be reincarnated without the express permission of the government. Uh, there you go. And I just thought that was brilliant because, in and of itself, like, how do you regulate that? Like, who who do you do you walk around to every newborn and think, hmm, this yeah. looks particularly like Dave who died last week? <laughs> Did you but, yeah, get
1: that's... permission? Did you get
0: permission?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to add before we go as well. Um, I know it's not actually at time of recording. We're not too long after releasing the episode that you've just spoken about actually um, but I've had a few comments and reviews so like like we always say I, I really do, you know, we encourage you to leave a review or get in contact with us uh, for any reason you fancy even if it's just say hello but we've had some interesting comments so um, Leo Allen from Voluntary Input has given us five stars, it's all on Good Pod. Um he said good thing he listened to the episode, now he knows what time he can walk his cow." <laughs> Chat Tsunami's given us five. Kay from the F My Work Life podcast. She's picked up on something you said. She goes, yeah, absolutely. Lions deserve to be disappointed in Top Gun as well. <laughs> um, <laughs> that was off something you said, I think. Five stars from Decane with the Boys. Five stars from Josh at Talking Smack. Antonio from the Cultworthy has said he's he's probably guilty of suspiciously handing a salmon. Arrest him. <laughs> so if any police are listening, there you go uh justin from the movie wire shows given us five austin boy has given us five stars and shane has given us five stars so i just thought it'd be funny yeah some of the co- comments we've had on that episode so far so
0: <laughs> some of the laws were pretty ridiculous to be fair i think there's plenty of scope uh, for um part two maybe we should actively go out and just try and break as many ridiculous laws as possible before and see how quickly we can get arrested
1: actually i've just remembered i uh, yeah well i don't encourage that by the way <laughs> I've got the the Okie Bookcast, who I was talking to on Twitter today actually so this is on tweet it said in Oklahoma it's illegal to make ugly faces at dogs take a <laughs> take a bite of someone else's hamburger which I can agree with because I don't like sharing food at the best of times wear your boots to bed but also whaling is outlawed now Oklahoma's a landlocked state so <laughs>
0: amazing I think there's, there's amazing. definitely scope to come back to this so yeah sorry i'm I'm done now i'm done amazing that one is actually class to be fair <laughs>
1: yeah
0: it's like it's like turning around to a brit and saying it's illegal to hunt camels on that note i'm gonna to hope to not destroy the intro like i destroy the outro like i destroyed the intro i've already done it <laughs> We. i'm gonna leave you If you do have any of the conditions as mentioned or know anybody that has any of the conditions mentioned, I think that would make a good episode, to be fair. So that would be cool to get someone on if you had congenital in what did I say? Intolerance to pain? The one that we talked about at the end. Um, So you can send us a tweet at Casting Views or drop us an email at castingviewspod at gmail.com. And as always, we will end with we know there are many podcasts from which you can choose. So we thank you for listening to Casting Views.
1: Thank you.